You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to 101.9 Kai FM. Uh, today I'm chatting about uh, several technological uh, in uh, just a legislation that's been introduced based around technology and the problems that it brings and the solutions it promises and so on. And to do that, uh, to chat with us, is Jan Vermeulen from My Broadband. Good day, Jan. Trust you're well. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, great stuff, Jan. Um, there's been a, a, a lot going on in in civil society sector and in government legislation processes over this past year. Do you want to take us through maybe some of the, the most important things that, that you have noticed in the technology space? Sure. There's been, as you said, there's been a lot. Perhaps a place to start is the most recent. Um, well, depends on how you want to measure most recent. But the most recent law to be enacted is the Cybercrimes Act. Uh, so formerly the Cybercrimes Bill. President Cyril Ramaphosa signed it into law, uh, at least parts of it, the, uh, the most of it has been signed into law, uh, with some of it still kept in the wings until regulations can be written for it. And uh, and that uh, uh, got a lot of people talking and, and has raised some concerns. It's Or rather, let me put it this way. It's it's a mixed bag. It's It's been, there's been a mixed response to this. There's um, uh, a lot of, a lot of people are saying it is, it is great uh, to have uh, many of the, the, the things that are codified in this law there as crimes. Uh, for example, things like revenge porn, having that in law and, and, an, uh, and uh, as a, ostensibly an easily prosecutable crime is a great thing. But, you know, then there's uh, concerns about uh, certain uh, freedom of speech issues um, around uh, what they call harmful or malicious communications, which is another part of the Cybercrimes Act that has been signed into law. And so the headlines uh, you would have seen around this um, is, is always some variant of uh, these WhatsApp messages can now land you in jail in South Africa. And that's not clickbait. That's, that's actually true. Um, th- there are now certain types of WhatsApp messages that can and not just well it's it's obviously anywhere but what makes it so interesting that it's on WhatsApp is that WhatsApp is a private communications platform and even though it's private if somebody you know in a in a group decides to report your communications uh, you can uh, you know be facing a fine or prison time as a result of this and so yeah that's the the, the, the gist of the Cyber Crimes Act. Um, happy to talk through any specifics if you've got yeah. questions. Uh, definitely. I think, you know, that's, that is a rather concerning, concerning development because obviously these laws and regulations will need to be tested. You know, when, when any new uh, piece of legislation comes out, it's up to the courts to actually determine or set a precedent at first. And then, and then we can, you know, have laws that, that, that go from that point. But this is a really interesting space because if I have a, a WhatsApp or Telegram broadcast group and uh, somebody within that group says something, and let's say there's 200 uh, comments per per hour, which is not unrealistic in, in some of these groups, right? how can I be held responsible as the owner of that broadcast group or channel for, for what somebody else has said? Right. And um, so... Uh, yes, but in a different way. 
right? So, so the Cyber Crimes uh, Act criminalizes. So the the malicious communications one, um, in particular, it, it it lists three messages. That is a specifically a data message which incites damage to property or violence, a data message which threatens people with damage to property or violence, and then the disclosure um, of a data message containing an intimate image. Uh, now now there things get interesting as well, um, because of how vague some of it is. Um, and you know, there's no case law and any, uh, all that stuff. Um, but so if you are the person, uh, you know, doing the inciting, right? Um, then you can uh, land yourself in jail for three years or face a fine or both, right? And so the Cyber Crimes Act, just to make this clear, defines violence as bodily harm and damage to property as damage to corporeal or incorporeal property, right? So it's not just your physical property, it can be digital property as well. So if you, for example, part, decide to become part of a hacker collective and, and uh, on that group say, you know, we should go and, um, hack and deface or destroy, uh, you know, the websites of these uh, companies or these government departments. That is incitement, um, to, uh, damage of incorporeal property. Potentially, um, uh, and speaking completely as not as a lawyer, uh, but certainly if I were if I were a prosecutor, uh, I, that that might be a way that I would look at at a case. And then you know, threatening is you know if, you, if imagine you know you have a person sending a message to to a corporation or a government department saying I will uh, break in and destroy all your data unless you do this, then then that is a threat. Uh, which in the in the age of ransomware um, is perhaps not a bad thing to have, um, and and uh, cyber extortion falls in a, in, a, in a different set of laws and and has much stiffer penalties. Um, but if somebody threatens to do that to you, then you already have something against them, provided you can identify them, of course. Now, um, now where things get interesting, right, is if you think about kids and kids being dumb. You, you you often have, uh, especially teenagers, threatening to do something or or uh, gathering a bunch of friends and, you know, quote unquote, inciting them to do something, or perhaps even doing something like, um, you, you know, if if folks will forgive me for being graphic for a moment, but for example, downloading the image. Uh, a, a nude image of someone, usually a porn star of some sort, and then photoshopping the face of somebody else on that, let's say a, a political figure, onto that image, right? And then putting that um, into a group. Th- that can be seen as disclosure of a data message containing an intimate image if you go and look at how the law is written there. And so these so, so, so yeah, I'm sorry, this this could be the death the death of memes in in, in essence. Of of those of those kinds of memes. I mean I haven't seen a lot of memes like that. Um <laughs> but 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 certainly, you know, if if we want to go looking for, for an extreme outlier case, they're there to be found, um and they're not really adequately dealt with in the law, unfortunately. And so, you know, if you have somebody powerful enough or with enough money that that you know gets ridiculed in this way, 
they potentially have grounds to go after someone who doesn't nearly have the power of money to defend themselves. Um, and uh, that that raises some questions. Um, now, the, the, the question one has to ask is whether the good will outweigh the potential harm here. And there, uh, I, I, have to, I have to err on the side of, especially when it comes to revenge porn, um, that yes, I, I do think that this law will do more good than harm there. Um, but uh, as with all things, it remains to be seen. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, the problem is, is we're in a country where, uh, for example, when the, um, when the laws around the age of consent in South Africa were updated, uh, there were some concerns over um, teenagers. So if, if two teenagers have consensual intercourse, there were some concerns that the law could be interpreted in a way that they could both then be taken to court for a criminal trial. Right. And the National Prosecuting Authority said we would never do that. And then there was one particular case. The, the details of it escaped me now. But I remember it clearly where um, where two teenagers were indeed taken to court for exactly this thing that the NPA said they would not do. And so, uh, you know, um, there's as, as South Africans, I think it's fair for us to be asking questions about these extreme outlier cases because every time we've been or on not every time but on on many occasions when we've been assured don't worry this is an outlier case that this law is not intended to cover this is not what we're going for and then they went for exactly that that's indeed it and yeah as as we said earlier on it's it's stepping into new territory here and it's going to be a learning curve for for absolutely everyone and there's, there's no doubt that there's going to be some ridiculous cases, some somebody being offended by something minor. But then again, again, it's open to interpretation. What seems minor to me might seem major to to you. So right, up, and up there's certainly an argument to be made um, mm. regarding the issues of incitement and threats of damage to property and violence. That we've had political leaders in this country, populists, who have. Uh, done that with impunity. And so hopefully a law like this um, starts putting, you know, uh, putting brakes on that a little bit um, because, uh, you know, it's, it's actually quite damaging um, to our economy um, and, and to livelihoods uh, uh, by extension when you've got political parties and their followers going out uh, under the umbrella of protest um, or political association and and causing damage um, and so uh, it it remains to be seen whether this law will actually be enforced in that way and there's um, certainly i think reason to be to ask questions about about what kind of chilling effect it might have but um, considering um, the reality we find ourselves in right now, where, as I said, you've got political leaders who can climb on Twitter and incite violence against groups of people and against property with no repercussions. Um, you know, th this, this kind of law might be appropriate in that context, you know, regardless of the potential unintended consequences, uh, just because, you know, it's time for us to crack down on that now. Mm -hmm. That is, of course, if... If the the government actually or the prosecutors actually do enforce it, or figure out how to to enforce it, and as as we've seen all too often in in South Africa, when when these laws are are introduced, 
there's a definite grey area where the law applies to some but doesn't apply to other. It's misinterpreted for some and reinterpreted to, interpreted for others. And all this really does sort of encroach on, on freedom of speech. And that's something that they're going to have to balance is you know, freedom of speech rights, uh, freedom of expression versus, versus what can be deemed as online harassment. I don't know how they're going to approach all of that. Yeah, it all comes down to, so, so what you're describing to me, uh, I, I attribute to a general problem of, um, access to the legal system right now. This is an interesting balance to maintain as well because, um, it's, uh, when something lands in front of a high court judge, uh, I, I feel like the, the application of the law has generally be, generally been consistent. Right. But the fact is to get there is a million rand down. Right. Not everybody has that. Um, or, um, you know, if you're on the if you're on the, the uh, prosecuting side, if you're on the victim side of it is, is getting the attention of a prosecutor to actually take your case. And if you don't, then having to pay a private prosecutor to do it, which is what we've seen happen in South Africa. And it, like vanishingly few people in this country have access to that kind of money. They don't have access to the, the kind of money needed to defend themselves, which is one uh, point of concern. And they certainly don't have access to the kind of money to pursue a private prosecution. Right. Um, and so I just want to want to sort of make clear where where I, I, uh, I guess, stand on on the issue that you've described there regarding um, the, the 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 imbalance uh, that exists in law. Now, that raises a couple of interesting questions. So. The, 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 the first one you raised that I think needs to be addressed is, um, the ability to actually prosecute, um, these laws, right? So, so firstly, it's got to do with law enforcement has to be able to investigate, gather evidence and present the case to the National Prosecuting Authority to actually prosecute effectively. And we have a skills gap there in South Africa, a skills and a capacity gap. Um, you know, we, we only have one thoroughly under-resourced cybercrimes department inside the SAPS. The Hawks are completely overwhelmed when it comes to these kinds of uh, crimes. Um, and so, yeah, I think there are valid questions and valid concerns or criticisms even to raise to say that's great that we've got this law in the books, but – um, you know, what's yet another law if we don't have the capacity to enforce it? And then uh, the other question you've raised or, or um, uh, arising out of uh, what we've been talking about regarding access to the law and to, ju- and to the, 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 the justice system, the judicial system is, you know, you can have something more in the lines of the American system where um, more ordinary folks – essentially have access because lawyers can take on cases knowing that they can get a payday out of it. So they take on your case without asking you to pay, but with um, the uh, gamble or the, or, or the, um, on the, uh, uh, with the possibility that they can take a proportion of the settlement that you get out of it. Right. And, and that leads to a whole different can of worms that I'm not sure we really want in South Africa either, because now it just becomes um, yet another income-driven or money-driven scheme rather than a justice-driven scheme, right? So, um, 
Yeah, uh, th- it, th- there's um, a number of very interesting philosophical questions uh, th- that arises out of this. They are, without a doubt, and I think that that is definitely why there's going to be have, have to be education from all sides as to the consumers what they can and can't do. Uh, the, you know, I mean, we're all trying to set what we're actually trying to do here is set a digital set of moral standards, which which is very very difficult in in a society such as diverse as South Africa's, uh, because we don't have a, a common set of of societal. Uh, morals and standards. However, there are laws, but these laws that are introduced completely rely on 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 that that moral standard being being set, which is which is difficult and really dangerous and murky waters to to be treading in. I mean, for example, the uh, cryptocurrency. Right. There's, there's so much fraud and potential fraud because people are ignorant to to what's really going on there. People don't understand the new technology. Government has tried to introduce regulations around that, obviously with the idea that they're going to tax it and and so on. But they just just read too much too much confusion. How how would we go about uh, dealing with laws like, say, for instance, the uh, the uh, cryptocurrency laws that that have been trying to introduce here as well? Yeah, that's that's a topic that's near and dear to my heart, um, and and uh, not just because um, I like uh, some of the ideas um, in blockchain technology and even cryptocurrency, um, but uh, because of what heavy-handed regulation represents to me. Right, what we've seen this year is rather so. So let, let me let me paint a picture rather is. For the last several years, we have been promised that we will be getting a comprehensive, well-thought-through, well-engaged regulatory framework for cryptocurrency innovation and blockchain technology in South Africa um, so that the, the, the folks in the financial technology space in South Africa that are busy working in this field have some kind of regulatory certainty about how to move forward. Right. And instead, what we got this year is the financial surveillance department and uh, the the revenue service um, using existing laws to come cracking down on the cryptocurrency space. And in fairness, it's because a bunch of scammers have ruined it for everybody. Right. So uh, infamously, we've had the mirror trading international scam, um, which chain chain analysis branded as the biggest uh, cryptocurrency scam of 2020 and that was uh, now we we have that uh, tacked to South Africa's CV as you know a uh, host of the biggest cryptocurrency scam in the world thanks thank you very much to everybody involved in that um, and then of course it was AfriCrypt which made sub- significant headlines around the world this year because of a misreporting of the amount of money that was involved there uh, but also because of the just juiciness of the story you know you had these two young brothers that looked dynamic and uh they they took a bunch of criminals or alleged criminals for their money and landed themselves in trouble and uh, skipped the country got themselves citizenship in vanuatu uh, like it was just a you know it's it's the kind of thing that eventually gets made into a netflix special um and so now what we sit with is our financial surveillance department, which um, basically handle export controls, taking a 1930s era law, an apartheid era law, and 
come and using its most extreme form to crack down on on uh, cryptocurrency in South Africa, right? So, so uh, just some of what they've done is they've made it. Um, they, they, they've they've gone to the banks. I don't know, don't know what kind of threatening they did at the banks, but they said you will not allow your customers to buy cryptocurrency on their credit cards, right? Um, because this ancient export control law, it's it's um, for those who are more technically inclined, so you can think of it as a deny all firewall. It denies everything and then allows very specific things through. And so <laughs> then if you look at the parts of the law that allow international transactions, so that the, the parts of the law that allow you to actually use your credit card on Amazon, for example, to go buy stuff in dollar and have it shipped to South Africa, it is very specific about what it allows and what it doesn't allow. But now the the financial the, the Reserve Bank and the Financial Surveillance Department, which is a, a department that actually sits in Treasury, uh, it's actually a Department of National Treasury that sits inside the Reserve Bank. Um, uh, it's an important, I think, distinction to make for those who are keeping track of this space. Um, what what they've not, what they've effectively done is they've unilaterally decreed that a cryptocurrency transaction is is this type of transaction and not that type of transaction, right? So, so in other words, a cryptocurrency transaction is um, essentially the purchase of a currency, um, uh, to put it, uh, you know, in, in very simplistic terms, rather than the purchase of something, um, you know, something that is, that um, uh, the, than than in-game currency, right? So I can, for example, log into my favorite game, you know, whether it's World of Warcraft or Valorant or um, uh, Warframe or uh, Fortnite, you know, name your poison, and I can buy their equivalent in-game currencies. And you know, basically, it comes down to that there's no direct way to trade it back and forth for rand. Um, is, is, I think, the one area of concern. But essentially what they've decreed is that um, uh, it, is, uh, it, is, it is unlike any other digital good that you can purchase. It is more like a currency, and therefore you're not allowed to use. They don't recognize it as, uh, as an, an, a normal digital good that you can buy online. And I'm like, no, but hang on a second. Here you are calling it a, a digital asset and not a currency, Right. Um, and but now you are treating it unlike any other digital asset or digital product that I can buy online, um, and banning me from buying it on my credit card. So that's the one thing that happened. That's and so pe- people yeah. trying to to buy cryptocurrency on Binance, for example, now no longer can use their credit cards to do so. You can still buy cryptocurrency on on online exchanges, but you have to use Swift, which is an incredibly slow and expensive way to transfer money. And so I don't know what issues, because they've been notoriously tight-lipped. I don't know what kind of issues they ran into. Maybe there was some kind of fraud that was happening that they're trying to crack down on, which is why they've, they've done things this way. Um, but from, from me as an outsider looking in or, or as, as someone with a vested interest in the space, um, without any of the inside information that they have and their unwillingness to disclose what's really going on, I look at it and go, you're being needlessly heavy-handed here. Um, and, and it just continued on from there. So they banned credit card transactions. Then they come out and they say that it is a criminal offense for you to transfer money or to transfer cryptocurrency out of your wallet in South Africa, whether it's your Luna wallet or your self-hosted wallet, if you've got a, a wallet running on your computer, to an overseas exchange. 
right? Without any definition of what constitutes an, an offshore exchange, because a lot of South Africa's, um, a lot of the exchanges operating in South Africa. Oh, we seem to have lost, seem to have lost Jan there. We'll try getting back, back in a moment. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to 101.9 High FM. And as as the clip said, democracy is hard work, and sometimes technology is hard work. Hard work too. We're chatting today with Jan Pemulen from My Broadband about the various bits of legislation that have been introduced around technology, the the rights thereof, the the rights, the wrongs, and so on. And welcome back, Jan. Good to have you back after the technology technology failure that you just experienced. <laughs> yeah, it was such a strange thing. My Skype just crashed out of nowhere. No, it's good to be back. I'm glad it wasn't permanent. <laughs> Cyber uh, attack of note. <laughs> yeah, it was the man who didn't want me to say mean things about them in cryptocurrency, man. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the the point the point I was arriving at is that um, aside from you know, as, as somebody with a vested interest in the financial technology and, and cryptocurrency space, what I'm afraid of is that our government in its heavy handedness and, and our government agencies like the Financial Sector Conduct Authority and Financial Surveillance Department, the Reserve Bank and the, and the uh, Revenue Service, that in their heavy handedness, they will effectively make South Africa an unattractive location to be developing these technologies and it is it is honestly it is like the next internet this right and so i want to say two things here firstly that attempting to block this like trying to uh, prevent this from happening or trying to legislate it away is like telcom trying to block the internet back in the 2000s uh, and and it didn't quite try to block the internet but telcom trying to monopolize the internet for itself telcom wanted all the other isps to be blocked from doing business and it wanted to be the only company allowed to offer internet access in the country right and um and that is what this smacks of to me is that yes there is an alternative internet based financial system being developed out there, right? It is early days yet. It is the Wild West, I understand. There's people getting hurt, people losing pensions um, because they are being taken for a ride, and obviously we want to deal with that. But if um, all you're going to do by being too heavy-handed in your regulation is you're going to drive this underground, and you're going to drive the legitimate innovators out of the country. They will just go and set up shop in Singapore or in, or in the Cayman Islands or in the Seychelles or in Switzerland, like everybody else, instead of in South Africa. And instead of paying taxes here, they're going to go not pay taxes over there, right? And so there's uh, – our government has to be very careful because we have a lot of patriots in this country that are willing to take a risk and launch their business here. But if you make it impossible for them, then they'll go, fine, goodbye. And then we just lose those skills and that innovation. And what I was driving at by saying that this is the next, the next ex- internet like explosion in technology is that just like, you know, the, the early PC revolution and the internet revolution minted billionaires, this is going to do the same. And I would love for some of those billionaires to be South African. 
Absolutely, wouldn't wouldn't we all? And, and wouldn't we want to be one of those one of those billionaires? And it, it really is amazing how there are so many opportunities every everywhere for for everyone. We just got to re sort of imagine our, our thinking and recalibrate our minds to actually deal with this. But of course, nothing is possible without electricity. And <laughs> right <laughs> in South Africa, that is a major problem. We can't do crypto mining. We can't do transactions. We can't even run a blockchain with without without the you know, access to electricity. And ESCOM is obviously the main main driver of that. Like Telcom had the monopoly. ESCOM has the monopoly here here still, which should be in question, shouldn't it? Especially when it comes to price increases. Yeah, and it's it's actually interesting to see how these monopolies eventually um, relinquished their, the, either relinquished their monopoly position or had it you know um, ripped out of their hands eventually, just lost their monopoly position. Mm. Um, and so in Escom's case, it's actually welcoming the competition. It's saying, please, everybody who can come online, build your hundred megawatt um, renewable energy. Uh, installation where that's now been allowed in in regulation. So lots of interesting things happened in the electricity space in terms of regulation. The first one was the relaxing of the um, of the of the permission to build up to 100 megawatts of capacity without requiring a special license to do so. You can't just do it. You still need you know certain approvals, um, but you don't now need approval from the the powers that be before building up to that capacity. Um, you just need to make sure that you know the environmental approvals are squared away and that sort of thing. And then obviously the the huge news w- was when ESCOM finally confirmed that it had asked for a 20.5 percent tariff hike um, for next year. Uh, from the national energy regulator and um, and it, it just goes to show the dire financial straits that the company is in um, you know South Africa still has some of the better priced electricity in the world, but a couple of price hikes like that, and we certainly won 't be um, no. you know we'll we'll go from average to overpriced very quickly um, so uh, yeah there's there's um, a lot of uh, there's, there's now going to be a, a consultation process around that tariff hike. But basically, ESCOM saying somebody's got to foot this bill. And it's either going to be the, the electricity user by paying more for electricity, or it's going to be the taxpayer paying for a government bailout. Yes. Someone's going to pay eventually. Yeah, it's, uh, isn't, that, isn't that amazing? Uh, Big entities like all state-owned entities should be run like non-profits. It makes no sense at all why they why they run in in the way they are. When you have an endless supply of of money, you really don't get concerned about about spending and so on. Because as you say, either the taxpayer or the consumer, the same person at the end of the day, is going to be paying paying for their uh, inability to to run a proper business. But you know, twenty point five percent. That is absolutely, absolutely crazy. And yeah, you know, as as we draw to the end end of other show, unfortunately, we we're running out of time. Jan, any final thoughts on how South Africans can protect themselves, how they can get involved, and and you know, fix the issues that 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 are surrounding us, or even educate themselves as to these technological advancements or intrusions. Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, um, we've got an article on the site that is literally titled 
all the new cyber crimes in South Africa that can land you in jail for 15 years. <laughs> so oh, that's like a, a good primer if you're looking for um, more information on what exactly is in the Cyber Crimes uh, Act. You and know, it's there's on my Yes, it's it's on my broadband at if folks want to go and check that out. Um, yeah. But uh, the final thought I want to leave uh, with folks is that our lives are going to be increasingly dependent on technology, and we as citizens have a say and something that dear South Africa is doing that I really appreciate is making it easier for people to, to get involved in the public participation process. And, um, I really encourage folks to do so. Um, inform yourself. There's plenty of information out there. The excuse of no, but I don't know. Um, and somebody else must come and tell me how it is. Um, the, the world doesn't work that way anymore. The information is out there. Um, you can you can uh, learn about these things uh, by yourself and then ask informed questions for the gaps to try and fill in the gaps in your knowledge. Right. Um, and from there, you can really make an informed contribution to the way legislation and policy in this country is formed. And that um, can really have a tremendous impact on um, on uh, our future. As a nation. Um, and so I really encourage folks uh, to get involved. Um, South Africans have become increasingly uh, politically engaged over the last few years. It's easy to understand why. And uh, long may that remain. <laughs> Lovely. Thanks. Thanks, Jan. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you as, as always.